It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Bax, and welcome back to Baxi's Musical Podcast. According to Rolling Stone magazine, Talking Heads were once listed at number 100 of the greatest rock bands of all time. This is another one of those reasons why one should never solely rely on Rolling Stone to give you good information. This is the same magazine that put James Taylor in the same list at number 84. I mean, come on, James Taylor. But in every other list ever created, Talking Heads ranked significantly higher. And they would certainly rank higher in my book if I had one, and thankfully, I don't. In fact, all you need to do is slap on Remain in Light or Fear of Music or Talking Heads 77 or watch the film Stop Making Sense just one more time, and you'll find out that the Talking Heads were freaking on fire. Let me try to put this into a greater perspective for you. From 1977 to 1978, Talking Heads released eight studio albums, seven of which went either gold or platinum. They released two live albums, including the soundtrack to arguably one of the greatest concert films ever released. They released 31 singles, nine compilation albums, and they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. And I haven't even mentioned the Tom Tom Club, whose first album alone went gold in 1981 before any of the other Talking Heads albums did. It's also become one of the most sampled recordings in history. And among the founding members of both of these bands, were drummer Chris Franz and his wife, Tina Weymouth. Chris has just released his memoir called Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, and Tina. And he was ready to talk about everything from David Byrne to the band to his 44-year marriage to Tina and a whole lot more. This is a repost of my conversation with Chris Franz from July of 2020. It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. I literally ripped through the entire book uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, and Tina. And I, I absolutely loved it. And, I, and, 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 the, and there's a couple of reasons for it. First of all, I, I like the fact that this isn't really just about the band, but this is really about the relationship and, and the love story you have with your wife, Tina Weymouth. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful story and a relationship that's clearly that is clearly still very connected to, in spite of a lot of things that have gone on in your lives and throughout your career. I, I think it's a real testament to the strength of that relationship. Well, well, thank you for that observation. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, I, when I look, I was thinking about writing this book for 10 years and I, I, I knew that it, it, I knew that talking heads would be a big attraction to it, but, you know, to, to the readers, but I felt like I don't want to write a book just about the band. So, so anyway, uh, I, I, it occurred to me that I have a really unique, uh, I'm in a unique position being in a, a rock band with my wife, having success, going through a lot of twists and turns and ups, ups and downs and still coming out, coming out the other end, I guess you could say, uh, intact our relationship is still intact and very you know we get along great she does correct me once in a while when i'm loading the 
dishwasher the wrong way. That's that's <laughs> just that's just called marriage, Chris. That's just yeah. <laughs> that's just a part of it. You know, it, it it it's a fascinating part of of the story because I like I said, I mean, it, it's it's not so much that you guys were in a band. I think any relationship has has obstacles. And you know, to work in such close quarters with your with your wife or with your partner presents its own set of of challenges. And, and to have go, to overcome that stuff after forty two years really says something about not only the kinds of people you are, but the way you connect with each other. And for all these, it's a, it's a remarkable story. It really truly is. Oh well, thank you very much. I I, I feel very fortunate as 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 a man have such a great woman in my life now she's sitting right next to you right so <laughs> actually i had i closed the door oh god <laughs> gonna get some barking here comes the fedex man that's okay <laughs> that's okay so about 30 this goes back gosh i don't know maybe like 30 years ago i was working in uh milwaukee and i interviewed uh, jerry harrison uh yeah. which, which is his hometown and right much so the, my perspective on your book is probably, I don't know, I don't want to say it's better than anybody else's because I, I mean, I can't say I know Jerry or I, I certainly have never talked to, to you or Tina, but the perspective I got from Jerry at the time was very much the same perspective I got from your book about the band. And, you know, this is a guy that had been through the Modern Lovers with Jonathan Richmond, and that was a real you know, difficult breakup uh, for him. And now he's working with you guys and, and, and David Byrne. And it always it felt to me from Jerry's perspective and now yours that this was just a group of people that really wanted to play great music together. And the only thing preventing you from continuing to play the music that just about everybody in the world would love to hear is one guy. And that I, to, from my perspective, that sounds like it has to be incredibly frustrating for all three of you. Do you still feel that way or is, is it kind of like a bygones be bygones type of thing? Well, I hope you noticed in the book, I try to take the high road and uh, it, it is, it, it is, and it was, and it probably always will be very, a very frustrating thing to deal with, but, but we've learned how to, you know, we've learned how to, I wouldn't say let, let bygones be bygones, but we've, we've learned how to live with the, our situation. And, and, uh, you know, I, in no way do I want to sound like a victim or anything like that because, because, and I'm sure Jerry wouldn't either, nor Tina, but, but we've, we, we've been very fortunate and we've had, you know, success and we, we, we've lived, lived very cultural, rich lives. And, uh, I guess you could say we, we're comfortable, uh, you know, in our lives. But yeah, that type of thing will always be a pain in my ass. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and I'm sure to be you know constantly hounded by the the questions without being heard has also got to be somewhat of a pain in the ass too because a lot of what people believe of the Talking Heads is is also coming from one guy and then it's as you yeah. describe in the book he takes a, a, a lot of the credit himself. When in yeah. fact, a lot of what happened in this band, like like any band, really, it, these yeah. were all band decisions, band songs, band ideas. It was it was never a, a, a one man show. Correct. So yeah. uh, it yes that 
that has been maddening over the years and and was one reason I I thought I should write this book because there have been a few books written about that's uh, but it's mostly they've relied on uh, magazine articles and you know the British music press and stuff like that to get their information which has always been skewed uh, in the David Byrne direction uh, and and I, I want to say, I, I still, despite all the problems, I still have great respect for David as an as an artist and a, and also as a performer. That's that's why I worked with him in the first place. As I I I felt like, well, even though there were obvious obvious, uh, shall we say, uh, eccentricities that might get in the way, I could I could I. I had a feeling, and I, I could feel in my like artistic soul that, that this was <laughs> something worth pursuing. Working with David, and and I all, I might add, I also brought Jerry in for that reason, and 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 Tina. So so uh, so we had a we had a musical uh, chemistry that was just fantastic. Uh, that doesn't happen. When when you have one person in a room, that type of chemistry it's a it's a it's a shared mutual chemistry, and I I, I hope I hope in this book I I have conveyed that with some I, how, I think you, you know. I think you made a very definitive statement in the book exactly what the participation was from everybody from you know and especially from you and Tina Tina was not was not a natural born bass player she didn't really play bass until she joined the band but the the backbone of that band when you think about the kind of music that you heard and and you know remain in light and a fear of music it's it's a danceable groove heavy band that could not happen if it hadn't been for the two of you so i to me to even think of it that's just it's just david burns project i i i don't buy it and i haven't bought it for the last 30 years when I first t- talked to Jerry, because he said the very same thing. Yeah. It's, uh, David is a very compelling individual. And uh, he, he uh, you know, he, he, ha- he has a way of drawing attention to himself. Uh, and, and, and that, in a front man, that is a good thing. Right. And, and so, so it was very successful for us. But after, you know, you know, I, I thought, oh, I shouldn't do this book. It'll it'll somehow, you know, queer any chance we have of, of a, a reunion or anything like that. But then I thought, nah, this reunion's not going to happen. David just isn't into it. Man. And also, and also, I would I would I would like for people to know what the real legacy of Talking Heads is, uh, what, what the real history of Talking Heads is. It, it, but as you, as you pointed out, it's not just about that. Yeah, you mentioned uh, about your your artistic sensibilities, and, and one of the things that I found you know, really interesting personally was you talking about the Rhode Island School of Design. I I grew up about ten miles out of Providence in a little town, uh, Rehoboth, Massachusetts. Very oh, very yeah. very small yeah. very small town. So you're talking about neighborhoods and and streets that I that I knew and I grew up with. And in, in fact, me and my my friends would hang out on on Thayer Street, pretending like our parents had enough money to send us to Brown or or to the Rhode Island School of Design, for that matter. 
But those, yeah. but those years at at RISD were were very very formative for the three of you, and especially for you and Tina, not just as as people, but but as artists. What was that experience like, and how did that set you on that path? Well, I, I was I was on a musical path before before I even went to RISD, and but I it it you know music music and painting or sculpture. Uh, Photography, filmmaking, all these things kind of go hand in hand. It's it's the same, it's the same, uh, the same feeling that that makes you want to create a painting as as does make you want to create a song. And so so I had been playing drums and I just loved to play the drums. Uh, and but I also loved painting. And when I went to RISD, I I didn't bring my drums for a while. Uh, <laughs> Up until I guess I got brought them the the second year I was there, <laughs> sophomore. But uh, well, you know the, the whole RISD experience was one of being surrounded by very interesting people, and, and uh, people that had ideas. Some people were more like in music you would call them keepers of the flame, like people who. <laughs> still play the blues but do it very well you had some artists that were you know stuck back in the impressionist years or or the, <laughs> or, or you know the, the the years of the surrealists or something like they were kind of stuck back there and then you had other people that were looking to the future and um and trying to be attempting to be co- contemporary and, and one thing we learned was that uh, well, it was instilled in us that it's okay to derive your ideas from some somebody who's come before you, like Matisse or Picasso or right. or uh, Robert Rauschenberg. It's okay to to derive your ideas from somebody like that, but you must add something to it that's unique unto yourself. Otherwise, you're just a copycat. So with Talking Heads, that that was always and also Tom Tom Club, that was always our uh, manifesto, you know. Uh, yes, we love the Velvet Underground, and yes, we love James Brown and Al Green, but, but we have to add something. We can't just emulate them. We have to add, we can't just copy them. Not that we could ever really copy James Brown, if you catch my trip, <laughs> but, but, but um, if we were inspired by certain artists, and and we we use that as a platform to spring off of to go someplace else. You talked about um, the early days. Well, when you when you left Providence and then you know, moved to New York, and you talked about uh, how important uh, CBGB had been to you guys, and and you even brought Hilly Crystal on stage with you during the the Hall of Fame enshrinement. For for people that, that don't know enough about Hilly and and what he was all about. Describe what he was like, especially when you first started going to CBGB's and, and, and started to play there. Well, uh, what I didn't know about Hilly at that time was he had a history of, of being um, a singer. In fact, he was a singer. At, he, had, he had performed like many, many times at places like Radio City Music Hall. And I, I didn't know that he had this, this musical background. I... I saw him as a club owner and um 
which would be an insult to most people, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, he, he was uh, he was a very uh, benevolent type of club owner, and and uh, when I first approached him about about uh, performing at CGBs, you know, I knew there was an audition process, so I went to see him. Can we audition? And he said in his very you know deep baritone voice, "Well." I could put you on in front of the Ramones tomorrow night. <laughs> and uh, he said, what kind of music do you play? And I said, oh, we play in a style of our own. And he just really laughed at that because, of course, he, everybody likes to think they play in a style of their own. <laughs> but but I think we actually did. <laughs> you did. You absolutely did. It's interesting, though, in the book, and, and, and I'm sure it didn't feel like this at the time, but the way – the book makes it feel from the moment you guys started to play or open up for the Ramones, it was like from zero to 60, all of a sudden you're then touring the country with the Ramones and then, and then Europe. It seemed like it was a, a, a pretty fast trajectory at that point for you guys. Is that, I mean, is that an accurate assessment or? Yeah. Once again, we were, we were very fortunate. We, we were in the right place at the right time by moving to New York and by discovering the club CBGBs, uh, where there was a, you know, a, the scene was just beginning, really. Uh, it, it, like I think I described, I, I went, one of the first people I saw there was Patty Smith, and there were maybe 25 people there, something like that. Yeah. And she, she just had one guitarist, Lenny Kay, and uh, was doing her thing, you know, which is that beat poet thing she does over top of Lenny Kay's guitar strumming. And and it, it sent chills up and down my spine. It was so good. Yeah. And um, later it became even greater with her, with her full band. But we, we were very lu- lucky to arrive at that point in time. And then we saw the Ramones. Then we saw television. Then we saw an, a very early version of Blondie. And even bands like Mink DeVille, right. uh, who who were sort of keepers of the flame, you might say. But all the all the other bands were really pushing it and really pushing themselves to do something that had um, artistic importance or cultural importance. And uh, it, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't about the money because when you only have twenty five people and half of them are your friends that got in for free, <laughs> you're not making any money. Right. Right. But it was just this. Uh, uh, you know, this thirst that we had to uh, to, to perform uh, to perform and comp- to compose songs and then perform them in front of a live audience together. It was it was, um, and we felt, at least I felt that the CBGBs was the equivalent of the Cavern Club, what that was, or the Star Club in in right. Hamburg was to the Beatles, and, and I, we, I was hoping we would find a place like that, and in CBGBs we did. You, you also talked about some of the bands that wound up touring with you when you were headlining XTC, uh, Dire Straits, and you also talked about uh, the B-52s, which I thought was actually a very moving story about your relationship with, with that band, and, and you know, I mean, they had some you know, major uh, you know, tragedies in that band with, you know, Ricky Wilson dying. And I just thought that was a really moving chapter. Is it, 
you, I love the B-52s, but there was a part of it that was like, you, I just felt very sad for what had, had happened and thrilled that they came back with such great success. They are an amazing band. Uh, I, I, occasionally I go see them when they're, when we're, they're performing nearby. And, um, well, actually I always go see them when they're performing <laughs> nearby and they're, they've still got it, you know, but, but to actually, uh, you know, uh, be on the road with them and to, uh, at one point, Tina and I were part of the band for a short while. Right. It, it was, you know, they're, they're just an amazing band, very, very unique, and nobody can copy them. They, they, they're, like I said, they are unique unto themselves. Uh, I, I always thought that was like one of the greatest party bands there ever was. It just, how could you not find that music infectious? Just, you know, and, and it goes back to their especially those first two albums, which I just thought were just so much fun. Yes, absolutely. So I thought one of the best chapters in the book, after you know, reading about all you know, the issues with, uh, between you guys and David Byrne, that, the, that the, the Rocky Apollo Creed moment of the book was you and Tina creating the Tom Tom Club back in, in the 80s. Uh-huh. I, you know, to me, what incredible validation for the for the two of you to put together music that even today all these all of these years later you hear it sampled and 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 used uh you know by everybody i just it, it literally was one of those moments in the book you just go yes screw that guy the tom tom club that was i just <laughs> so much fun well you know to us talking heads to use a p-funk term talking heads was always the mothership and we no way we were going to abandon the mothership, but we, uh, with Tom Tom Club, we were. It was just like one of those. It was just one of those like Matt. It sounds like a cliche, but it was a magical period in time for us, and ev- everything was just clicking and working really well. And uh, you know, Tina and I had never written songs, just the two of us. And uh, so it it was a challenge. It was a real challenge, but but uh, as you pointed out, it did pretty well. <laughs> I'd say it went. Uh, it did very well. And did it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. That was the first gold record you guys had together. That's correct. Well, to be honest, we had a gold record in New Zealand for more songs about buildings and food. But- uh, I think a. a, a a gold record in New Zealand was maybe a thousand copies, something like that. <laughs> uh, but a Tom Tom Club, well, now it's it's in the it's in the millions, well yeah. up in the millions. But it, it 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 sold right out of the box in America. It sold like five hundred thousand, which was gold. The band obviously had a very long working relationship with uh, with Brian Eno, and it, it, you know, while it was productive, you, de- you described it as being a very demanding relationship i don't know whether it was just purely professional or 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 personal but explain or what made that so so demanding well it it was actually brian who was demanding Uh, and it didn't it didn't start out that way it started out very copacetic and everything was very cool and easygoing and everybody was very happy Uh, and um it wasn't really until the third album uh, remain light that we did with Brian, 
Some people say it's the best record we ever did. Um, it was it was at that point that I, I could just see he and David had made a, a solo album before that. Well, not a solo album, but a, a an album called, they did together called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And we were, although I played on one track that was recorded in New York, the rest, they then moved the operation out to San Francisco and worked at a studio studio out there. And uh, something went down between them. Uh, I don't know what it was, but something went down between them, and, and they really didn't want to see each other after that. <laughs> and uh, But Tina and I, through psychiatry, not psychology, uh, managed to get everybody back together in the same room playing music again. And um, I don't know why, but it seemed like uh, we, we – I do know why. We were coming up with stuff that was so inventive and so, like, swinging that um, David and Brian wanted to take the credit, like – they just wanted to take over the project and say it was their project. Uh, I mean, Brian Eno wanted us to, the title of the album to be Remain in Life by Talking Heads and Brian Eno. Right. So, uh, so we had mm. to have our manager talk to him and say, Brian, are you going to be able to tour behind this album? And Brian said, oh, no, I can never do that. I don't tour. And, and, and then our manager said, well, you know, there's going to be like a six-month promotional tour following this, and we can't call the album Talking Heads and Brian Eno if you're not going to be on the tour. So that was a, <laughs> a very, very good way of putting it. But but Brian just he, – he wanted to we – were, we were cool with him being the fifth member of the band. That was fine. Right. But it's when, it, when he tried – you know, he, he – he would demand every time he went back and forth across the Atlantic, it had to be on the Concord and we had to pay for it. And, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it just like, I mean, no disrespect because Brian Eno is a very, very multi-talented deep thinker, you know? Right. He really, he, re he really is. He's the real deal. But, uh, he has to, in my opinion, he has to learn how to cooperate with people. <laughs> I probably am not the first one to tell you this, and I am sure I will not be the last person to tell you this. I remember seeing Stop Making Sense the first time on a big screen TV with some, when someone you know, jacked up the, uh, the stereo, and, uh, and we watched it one real late night, and I think we were in Warren, Rhode Island watching this. I was, I was uh, home from college, uh -huh. and I watched it, and I was absolutely blown away, blown away by not how just how great the movie was or how great the performance was. I was blown away that I had taken all those years to realize what I had missed several times around in seeing you guys play. It was like, oh, why did I not go see the Talking Heads when I had the chance? What a what a, a an incredible document to how great you guys were live. It, it it's maybe one of the best concert films ever made. Uh, I you you won't get any argument from me about that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know uh, the great thing about Stop Making Sense is everybody involved from uh, 
not just the band, but also the cameraman and the lighting people and the, the direction and the editing. Every, everybody did a fantastic job. Everyone was like, I guess you could say, at the top of their game. And it, and it really shows. And I'm so glad it, it turned out so well. Can, can you imagine having a movie about yourself that's like terrible <laughs> or, or boring? <laughs> it happens. I'm sure it happens a hell of a lot more than either one of us are willing to, to believe. Yeah, but it happens yeah. all the time. Uh, a few years ago, you guys were enshrined in, into the Hall of Fame. It was the first time you had played with David in, I think, uh, 18 years or, or whatever it, it had been. And then you you talk about it in the book that it really was the last time that you had seen David Byrne, and he seemed to disappear in the woodwork. And despite your best efforts to reach out, never had any interest in in, in getting back to you. If David Byrne were to suddenly change course and say, "All right, uh, I'm now ready to, to play with with uh, you and Tina and Jerry." After all of this that has gone on, would that be something you would still agree to? Oh, yeah. I think we we would welcome that. Uh, I mean, you know, it, for, no re, uh, for no other reason than, than all those fans out there that would lo- just love to see us play one more time or two more times. <laughs> I, I would love that. Yeah. I think I, I think everybody would, and 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 not to put you on the spot, but I got thirty six dollars and seventy four cents in my pocket. I'll give you right now if you can make that happen. <laughs> would that be enough, Chris? <laughs> uh, I you'll have to ask David. <laughs> <laughs> I, but something tells me that probably wouldn't be enough. That that would be enough for me, Mike. <laughs> The, uh, the name of the book, uh, Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, and Tina. It is a wonderful, wonderful book, and I appreciate you, you joining me today and talking about it. Thank you so much, Chris. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. The title of Chris's book is Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, and Tina. It is an awesome book, and you can find it at places that actually sell books. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share it, post it, subscribe it, review it. Tell all your friends about it. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.